Okay, well, I'm looking forward to um, the sermon that will follow this because it's an interesting passage, um, and you'll find out why very shortly. So 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. In every church service, I want the men to pray. Men who are dedicated to God and can lift up their hands in prayer without anger or argument. I also want the women to be modest and sensible about their clothes and to dress properly, not with fancy hairstyles or with gold ornaments or pearls or expensive dresses, but with good deeds, as is proper for women who claim to be religious. Women should learn in silence and all humility. I do not allow them to teach or to have authority over men. They must keep quiet. It goes on, doesn't it, John? Oh, yeah. For Adam was created first and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and broke God's law. But a woman will be saved through having children if she perseveres in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Okay, may God bless his word and Howard as he speaks to us. Amen. <laughs> There aren't many times when you have people laugh when there's a Bible reading. Um, when I preached on a similar passage at St. Peter's, there was booing after the Bible reading, which I thought was quite difficult. And while I was preparing for this message on the radio on consecutive days, there were debates about women in leadership. Uh, one day, it was about women speaking on the marae at Waitangi. Uh, brought about because our political parties both have women leaders, our, our two main parties. And I love the fact that the Prime Minister, as a woman, could speak at the porch gateway uh, to the marae because that was the domain of the God of peace. And that clicked around in my uh, Bible-soaked brain because that is the name of our God, the one true God. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, the God of peace. And of course, Māori were reluctant, however, to change their tikanga to allow for women to have equal speaking rights. The next day was an interview about women being trained and released into leadership in another male-dominated area, in the rural sector. And the issue of women in leadership is an important one in our society and also within the church. And this is the second message in the series, Women and Leadership in the New Testament, the silent witnesses and the silencing passages, which is my contribution to our wider winter sermon series, Her Story, Her Voice, Women in the Bible. And in the first talk, we explored the silent witnesses to Paul's acceptance of women in leadership in the early church. Remember, we went through those list of names in Romans 16. But we also need to look at the passages that seem to be and have been used as anti-women in leadership. We need to look at them. And the passage that we're looking at today has been used unrelentingly as a proof text to swiftly and decisively squelch the ministry of women in fellowship. In one book I read for the sermon, and it's, I, had to read, I, I read 
you know, two or three complete books just for five verses, which shows you how much has been this, these verses have been thought about recently. But in one of those books, it, it noted that, uh, that this verse, these verses have been used this century to defend the firing of a woman Hebrew professor from a very conservative seminary in the States because she could not have a position where she taught and had authority over men. Didn't matter how good a professor of uh, Old Testament Hebrew she was. Likewise, it's been pointed to as proof that Paul and Scripture are anti-women and so should be dismissed as best as archaic and irrelevant and at worst as harmful and dangerous. The passage is also acknowledged as being difficult at many levels, contextually, culturally, linguistically, grammatically, and conceptually. Those are big words that sort of uh, cover this big issue. And we need to dig deep and wrestle with it. Because in the end it has a lot to say to us that we might not hear if we simply either write it off or quote it to reinforce our preconceived ideas. And can I say that there are many different interpretations of this passage and I've found that the choice about how you understand different words and their meanings are often more dependent on which view of men and women you hold than anything else. When it comes to the epistles in the New Testament, we need to realise that the key to understanding is that they are occasional. That is, that they are written to a specific occasion, a specific time and a specific place to a specific context. And we need to understand it in that context before we can start to apply it in our context. And the context of the whole of Paul's letter to Timothy is that Paul had left Timothy and Ephesus to deal with false teachers and teachings that were disrupting the church and its witness. Now, it would be great if we had a comprehensive uh, list and understanding of what those false teachings were. But we only get glimpses from what Paul tells us. However, we need to realise its influence, however, all the time in what, what all Paul says uh, to Timothy. And Paul starts dealing with these false teachers by addressing the impact that they're having on public worship and the prayer life of the church. The the passage is a continuation of Paul's teaching, which started in verse 1, with a call to prayer for all people, that everyone should pray with all kinds of prayer for all people, because God's heart was for all people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth through the one God, and the one mediator between humanity and God, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for all. There's a universality of this prayer. All people, Greek and barbarian, Jew and Gentile, slave, free, men and women. Christ died for all, men and women. We come to a saving knowledge the same way, through Christ, men and women. But it's also a strong call 
of the uniqueness of the Christian faith through the one God and mediator Jesus Christ. And then Paul had gone on to deal with the dominion of the people who prayed. Did you notice? Both men and women. He told men to lift holy hands and pray without anger or dispute. You know, without anger or dispute. That's important when we come to the rest of it. He addresses women that when they pray, again affirming their participation in public worship and prayer, when they pray, just like the men pray, when they pray, they should not adorn themselves with jewellery, braided hairstyles, and in inappropriate clothes. Their focus should be on their lives and good deeds, exactly like the men, you know, that who, who needed to realise that anger was not part of uh, the Christian passage, the Christian life. In the worship of the goddess Artemis in Ephesus, and Ephesus was dominated by that worship, the, the temple to Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Women would adorn themselves in their jewellery and their finery and new hairstyles as a way of reflecting their status in society. And that would be part of their currying favour with their deity. And it seems that this had carried it over into the church. And Paul is saying, well, it's not about the outward appearance, but our heart attitude shown in how we treat others. That's what matters in prayer. Now, sadly, this passage has been applied almost legalistically in a way that has been oppressive to women. You just have to watch things about Gloria Vale in New Zealand to see how some people have sort of used it just to, you know, there's a dress standard and a uniform. That's how they've applied this passage. On the other hand, we don't often hear of men being told that their prayers are invalid if they have arguments with one another or that they're invalid if they do not stand with hands raised when they pray. You know, we don't have that same legalistic approach. The emphasis in this passage is on the heart attitude of the prayer. It's on the heart attitude how our lives reflect our faith in Christ. And then Paul moves on to say, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now the first thing we should note is that Paul wants women to learn. You know, this is a passage that affirms the education and the theological education of women. In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, he had said he wanted the whole body Everybody to learn and grow, uh, to grow into maturity and fullness, to be equipped uh, in every good deed. That's in Ephesians 4. And you know what? The gospel in the New Testament church was different than its Jewish and pagan systems around it, that it saw women learning in religious matters as important. It was important that men and women together knew the scriptures and the gospel and how to apply them in life. And you know what? The education of women has in actual fact been at the forefront of the missionary movement, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, around the world. Because Christians would educate women. 
You know, the revival in Korea, you know, uh, one of the things that sparked that was because the missionaries went there and they would teach women. You know, and the education of women is still a huge issue in the world today. And Christians have been at the forefront of it. You remember the, the news stories about the, uh, the Muslim extremists who took those 200 girls away. It was from a Christian school for girls. You know? The word that the NIV rightly translates quietness has been translated in other places as in silence. And it's been used to effectively silence women from speaking and taking part in public worship. However, the word quietness here is the same as the word quiet life that Paul had used as the reason we should pray for kings and people in authority, <coughs> excuse me, in 1 Timothy 2.2. We pray for them so that we could live a peaceful and quiet life, which were the best conditions for the church to grow into all holiness and godliness. It's not about silence, it's about a lack of conflict and trouble. It's the right environment to learn. And submission here has the idea of not all women being submissive to all men, rather it's the right attitude for learning. It's like silence is the right attitude, right posture in a library for learning. You know, it's not per men per se that they are to be in submission to, but the word of God, to the gospel and the apostolic teaching. Jewish rabbis' disciples needed also to have the same attitude when they learned. They needed to be quiet and in submission to the Torah and their teaching, their teachers. And we're going to look at this concept a little bit in a little bit more depth when we look at 1 Corinthians. Martha Mary is the example of what it means to be a disciple and a learner in Luke 10, 38 to 42. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of, by the way, is a technical term in Jewish religion for being a disciple. And she is engaged in learning. It shows that Jesus was comfortable with women as disciples and in the public space of the house, which in Jewish and Roman society was predominantly the preserve of men. Now, it's likely that Paul said this because there were women present in, in Ephesus who, because of the influence of false teachers, were not willing to listen. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, 6-7, Paul talks of a group of women who were gullible, and under the influence of false teachers who were always learning but did not come to a knowledge of the truth. They were not willing to accept the apostolic teaching. And you can imagine how that would impact on public worship, on the ability of the rest of the church to learn, and that, that you know, they would be argumentative and disruptive. Well, let's move on. I do not now permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Again, it's that same word, quiet. Not silent, but quiet. Firstly, the flow of scripture in the gospel and the New Testament is towards equal involvement of men and women in leadership and the mission of the church. 
As we saw last time, the women were the first to hear the good news that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were the first to proclaim that, to go and tell. Men and women were together in the upper room at Pentecost and received the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus said would enable them to be his witnesses and to prophesy. That is what the... um, the passage from Joel chapter 2 said, men and women would speak forth God's word. Paul's own ministry practices elsewhere in scripture show us that Paul was in actual fact comfortable with women in leadership. Now of importance here is that in Ephesus we are told Priscilla and Aquila had been teaching and had taken Apollos aside and told him the truth about the gospel. Paul uses the same title, co-worker, for them, for her, Priscilla, as he does for Timothy and Titus. And you know, in light of that, well, how do we understand what Paul is now saying? I do not now permit women to teach and have authority over men. Well, the word do not now permit has been argued over as to whether it's a blanket ban or more along the lines of in this situation, or now I do not. It's in the present tense. So has Paul changed his practice? That's part of the debate. It also follows in a line of words where Paul had said, I want, I want, and now I do not permit. None of these, by the way, is an imperative. They are not commands. That's important. And how you interpret that is at the heart of how this passage is applied. We then need to consider what Paul is not permitting. And there are two things here. Teach and have authority over a man. Now the word for authority here is it's the only time it's used in the New Testament canon. So that's not that helpful. Um, You know, uh, and there are other words that are used and translated authority. It has negative overtones uh, about authority and, its, uh, and what authority means in its uses in other early literature. Okay? It only becomes more commonly used and takes on a positive vibe after Constantine makes Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire in 312 AD which may reflect that desire in Roman society for order and hierarchy. The word can mean to be dominant or domineering. Paul does not permit a woman to teach in such a way that she's trying to get what she wants and dominate men. She needs to be quiet, which again is the word not for silent, but peaceful and in order. Women teaching and dominating men would have been looked down upon by Roman and Greek society and Jewish society as well and would be detrimental to the spread of the gospel. Just as that dominating attitude towards women is detrimental to the gospel in our day and culture. And we shouldn't be surprised that Paul would not allow women to dominate men. Because in his letter to the church at Ephesus, as Paul had addressed the Roman household code, his teaching had been, in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. There is a mutuality about that. 
submit to one another that revolutionises the Roman household code from an imposition of strict social order. The emperor says, I will keep everything in order, which means that you as the man are the head of your house, you keep your wife in order, you keep your children in order, and you keep your slaves in order. That's the Roman household code. Okay? But what Paul does is he revolutionises that from being that strict imposition of a power structure to be all about loving service. Submit to one another. And perhaps the best way of looking at this idea of authority and what the Christian idea of authority is, is the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 20, 25, where he tells his disciples, do not be like the Gentile rulers who lord it over each other. Rather, they were to learn to be the servant of all. So is it a woman per se that Paul is against? Or is it the way this group of women in Ephesus were behaving contra to the Christian understanding of servant leadership, of being co-workers together in Christ? The Christian understanding of leadership is service. And in our Presbyterian Reformed way of doing things, we understand that that is a group activity of being co-workers together. We are suspicious when power of the danger of power being in the hands of a single person or even a single group without those checks and those balances. Uh, in the business world, Robert K. Greenleaf published a book called Servant Leadership in 1977. He's a non-Christian. And that book started the revolution of studying leadership in society and business. His ideal for leadership came from Jesus. And it was a flat leadership structure of people committed together to work for a common goal and a common good. And you know, this issue of power and dominance is still one which challenges the church today. Uh, over the Christmas holidays, I read a couple of books on, on issues to do with power and toxic cultures in church. Just a little bit of light holiday reading. And it was interesting because uh, there was the sense of leaders being right and dominant and having status and, and, and mastery was seen as resulting in abusive and toxic church cultures. And it also was, was seen, and these books were looking at, at you know, the, 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 the rash of charges with the Me Too movement, uh, which has become the Church Too movement, of sexual abuse from these key leaders who had the sense of being superior. You know, sexual abuse by these key leaders of women. Well, then Paul goes back to the Genesis story. For Adam was firm, formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbirth. Now, the hierarchical understanding of this passage, uh, the um, com uh, complementarianist uh, understanding of this passage, is that Paul is asserting the primacy of men because in the second creation story in Genesis, men were created first. 
Note in the first Genesis uh, creation story in Genesis, Genesis 1.1, it simply says, God created man, male and female. Equality. You know? <clears throat> right. And, and because Eve listened to the servant, serpent that women are easily deceived and, not to be, and are not as spiritually smart as men. So relegating them to the domestic sphere of childbirth and caring for the family. Now again, the social context in Ephesus is important. Firstly, from 1 Timothy 4.3, we see that some of the false teaching was around abstinence and not being married. In 2 Timothy 1.17 and 18, Paul talks of two false teachers who had said that the resurrection had already come. Like in Corinth, there were people that thought we are now in the in the kingdom of God totally. They call it over-realized eschatology. And, and my eyes glaze over when I hear those words as well. But it means that sort of we've arrived. And that means that they'd thrown off all the, the, the things to do with being human and physical, like marriage. In Corinth, you know, um, they'd stopped having sex. Uh, and we'll get onto it later. They'd thrown away all the gender identifiers of men and women. And, and, you know, maybe there's some of that teaching here. That married life and childbearing were no longer part of that new resurrection life. The other side of this is that the main religion in Ephesus, as I said before, was the worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana. Ephesus was world famous and dominated by the temple of Artemis. And a large portion of the city's wealth and fame came from that. You just see that in Acts 19, when, when the gospel takes hold and Paul's there for three years, that, you know, what happens? The idol makers, they throw a riot because nobody's going to be buying our idols anymore. They bring together a whole lot of books on witchcraft and that have to do with the worship of these pagan idols and they burn them. So it was a huge part of that culture. And in that religion, priestesses were allowed to be dominant. It was a religion where women could dominate men. And Artemis was also the one that women prayed to for safety in childbirth. The hairstyles that are mentioned in verse 8 and 10 were also associated with this worship as well because displays of wealth and sexuality were part of their worship. And it was said by uh, another um, historian that their prayers were wrapped up in their hair. So Paul is working on two fronts here. He's not to say that women are inferior to men, but probably to remind that group of women that they were not above men. The creation story is used as a leveller. In fact, in the myth of Artemis and Apollos, the two twin god-children of Zeus, much was made of the fact that Artemis, the female goddess, was born first. And here Paul may be countering that from the Bible. And it tells us in, in Timothy that the false teachers were caught up in myth and genealogies. And while there's some debate over the childbirth part, saving her is not being saved in terms of being put right with God. Because remember, it is only through faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for us that we are put right with God. 
And to, for Paul to say that now does not make sense. And on a, on a different pastoral level, a misunderstanding of this passage can have horrible and damaging impacts on a childless couple. The wider understanding of the word saved is in play here to mean rescue. In the Old Testament and the Psalms, save me Lord, is not talking about coming to a saving relationship with God because the Jews praying would already be in that covenant relationship. It's save me from this situation. Um, uh, there, uh, There may have been a fear for women who had been part of the Artemis worship, as most pagans in Ephesus would have been, at facing pregnancy without their reliance on pagan prayer because Artemis was the one they prayed to uh, to get them through childbirth. Kind of, it'd be kind of like modern times facing, you know, you can imagine sort of facing uh, pregnancy without modern medicine. You know, it might be the same sort of thing in society. And one of the main reasons women died in that time and culture, the number one reason, was in complications in childbirth. But it is God, says Paul, who is with them in that situation. Our God, who is able to save them. At the same time, Paul is again addressing the fact that this is a normal God-given role for women, and it's not to be abandoned. In the end, Paul's hope for women is that they would continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The same things that Paul wishes for all the church. Faith, that invisible relationship with God made possible for all through Jesus Christ, reflected in love, that we treat those around us uh, uh, with love, and holiness, a life that is consistent with the one God whom we worship. Propriety gives the idea of self-control, which is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, after this passage, Paul goes on to talk to Timothy about setting up elders in the church. And he says they are to be heads of households. You know, they've got to have that, you know, um, administration uh, uh, experience, which in Roman times were more usually men. Although, you know, in Scripture we have a few examples where that's not the case. First church in Europe was in Lydia's house. She, there doesn't seem to be a man there. It was her household. In Corinth, they talk of Chloe's people. She's the head of that group. And even Martha and Mary, who invited Jesus round for dinner, were, were, did, there wasn't a, a, a man there, their father there or something like that. They weren't married. So they were the heads of their own house there. And this reflected the society of Paul's day. However, today, today, however, our Western society and its understanding of the place of women is very different than it was in Paul's day. How we understand and apply Paul's teaching has been and is still hotly debated and can and does have an impact on the gospel. You know? And that's the, that's the big challenge that's before us. Paul's focus is on the mission of the church, God wanting all people to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. The gospel has been welcomed in many places because Christians were and are prepared to teach women. In many places around the world, there there may be good reasons for caution in the speed to which women are welcomed into public leadership because as in Paul's day, having many women teachers in a society that does not permit women teachers would be 
counterproductive. It may endanger them and the church. But in the West, as Paul Towner finishes his commentary on this passage, says, too little, too slow in having women in leadership could neutralise the church's impact on society just as effectively. In the end, we are called to be co-workers in the gospel, working together, not looking to dominate each other and have our own way. And the next page has trigonometry things on it, so I've obviously picked up some of Chris's stuff. Let's pray. Well, Lord, that's a a challenging passage. And uh, we pray that you would help us to be co-workers together, men and women. We pray for Christian leaders not to think it's about authority and dominance and status. Help us to realise that it is about service, serving one another, following Christ together, working together, doing the things that you've, you've appointed us to do for the common good. Father, forgive the way in which the scriptures have been used and misused uh, to dominate women. Help the church worldwide to have a right understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.